Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Um, in this episode, I'm going to be talking with Jeffrey Kotick about the interactions between ancient Western astrology and ancient Chinese astrology, and specifically the transmission of Hellenistic astrology to uh, China and to Japan, which is a research subject that Jeffrey has focused on over the course of the past decade. Uh, so hey, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. This is one of my first in, in-person interviews, so thanks for doing that. You're actually in town right now for a conference, right? Right, a big academic conference, and so the time was just really auspicious to do this. Perfect. All right. Um, so let's talk first, um, where should we start? I mean, my starting point, I think, for me would want to be your PhD dissertation, which you just finished a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And what was the title of that? Uh, Buddhist astrology and astro magic in the Tang Dynasty. So the Tang Dynasty being one of these Chinese dynasties that ran from the seventh century to the late ninth century. Okay, seventh century to late ninth century. So that's roughly like the early medieval period in the in the West. And it's also the period of um, the early period of Islam, and also the the period when the early um, Arab astrologers were operating. Right in Baghdad, surrounding like the House of Wisdom and other things like right. that, the Abbasid Caliphate. So it's the same period as um, Al Tabari and Abu Mashar and so forth. Okay, and um, one interesting point: so how many? What languages do you know? Well, my main language is classical Chinese, but I also um, speak ma- modern Mandarin and also read and speak Japanese, and then I also have elementary knowledge of Sanskrit. Okay. So and then plus English, so which is your native tongue, right? Canadian English, sure. For lack, of, <laughs> for better or worse, where are you originally from? I'm originally from a city called Winnipeg, which is north of North Dakota. Okay, right. Um, and where did you get your PhD, or P- where did you go to school? Actually, what was the like sequence? Well, first I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, which mm-hmm. is not so far away from Calgary. And then I, I studied Japanese and Chinese, and I also spent one year of my undergraduate in Japan um, studying Japanese. And then for my master's degree, I went to Tokyo. I went to a university called Komazawa, mm-hmm. and I did uh, a general Buddhist studies master's degree. And then between that time and my PhD, I spent uh, about three and a half years just working as a freelance translator, but I was wandering around Asia. And during that time, I was ordained um, as a monk for two years in India. Also spent some time in Taiwan, and then I did the PhD at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Okay. And then after the PhD, which I finished last year, I went to Germany where I did a six-month postdoc project looking at the synesthetization, that is to say the localization of horoscopy in China between the 9th to the 16th centuries. Okay. And when did astrology start to become your main subject of focus, or when did you decide to make that the focus of your academic studies? Yeah, um, I mean, I've always had an interest, sort of passive amateur interest in astrology and um, the skies. I mean, when I was a little boy, I would kind of do stargazing. Mm -hmm. But as an academic interest, I would say about 2011, 2012, I started taking a serious look at horoscopy and trying to figure out what this meant historically, um, not in in modern terms, but what it meant in ancient and medieval um, environments. And so then I, I found some Buddhist scriptures which had references to the zodiac signs, and I thought this was rather unusual because the zodiac signs come from Mesopotamia, and Buddhism comes from India. Mm-hmm. So um, that basically led me to research the uh, practice of astrology in East Asia, which is my area of expertise. And what I found was that there was actually a lot of Buddhists who were very much interested in astrology, specifically horoscopy, from the eighth and ninth centuries onward, and this hadn't really been researched before. So it was a very fertile area of research to pursue. 
And, and nobody had really done much work on that before, right? Not as comprehensive as I had hoped. So we have some scholars like David Pingree, who's very famous. Um, you know, he was one of these uh, polyglots who who read, you know, Sanskrit and Latin and Greek and Arabic, but he didn't know Chinese. And we also have the work of um, Yano Michio, who is, had looked at uh, the sort of the study of East Asian astrology, but he's a historian of science and a Sanskritist. So his work is very, very useful, and it's basically a foundation from which I've uh, built up my own research. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and how are you defining, maybe really quickly, just to interject, how are you defining horoscopy? So, horoscopy being the production of horoscopic charts that indicate the position of the planets at a given hour. So charts, basically like Western astrological charts that have the ascendant and then the, the 12 houses Precisely. and other things associated with that? Precisely. And as we'll discuss um, later on, there was uh, nakshetra, that is to say lunar mansion astrology also practiced, but that's strictly speaking not horoscopy. Mm -hmm. That's a different form of um, Indian astrology. Sure. And so you would, that's distinct from, so then you're defining like horoscopy, especially in East Asia, like in China and Japan, as being distinct from other, let's say, more indigenous forms of astrology that have a different sort of right. technical focus? Right. Well, I should clarify that there was such a thing as native Chinese astrology. Mm -hmm. And when we call it astrology, though, we, we don't want to conflate it with horoscopy. So native Chinese astrology has a very, very long lineage, and it's not astrology as we understand it. It's more celestial omenology. So the Chinese, um, since very ancient times, um, we're talking in so before common era, before Christ, those centuries, they developed a form of um, this omenology where they would um, look at the sky and they divided the sections of the sky into different regions of China. So, so above, so below. That principle was also there in in China. They actually had that as like an operating principle for their astrology. They did, yeah. And so, if you had any sort of celestial um, phenomena that perceived of as anomalous, such as comets and, and so on, they would look to which geographical area of China that corresponded to relative to the sky. Okay. So and, a region of the sky would correspond directly to a region of Earth? Right. Only China though. Okay. Yeah. So it was what we call sinocentric, so centered on China. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this was the native form of court astrology, but it's not relevant to individuals because it only discusses the fate of the nation and the territories within it. And at most, the emperor's well-being. But for common people, so it's like mundane astrology, basically. Right, it's mundane astrology. Okay, um, and this was very well developed and canonized, um, especially around the Common Era. So the same time as the Roman Empire was flourishing in China, there was the Han Dynasty, and during the Han, Han Dynasty, they also developed a lot of their calendrical science and astronomy. And so this was also the time that they really canonized their um, astro astrological lore. Right. That's I heard a reference. I don't know if I read it in Pingree or somewhere else, but that was always fascinating to me. The idea that that indigenous form of Chinese astrology was standardized or really became synthesized in the Han Dynasty somewhere around the same time frame that Hellenistic astrology was being synthesized, circa like the first or second century BCE. Is that roughly the right time frame? Yeah, from about the second century BCE until the second century Common Era. So it's okay. about the same time that Hellenistic horoscopy is is coming into um, development. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Like parallel development in right. different parts of the world of just different independent astrological right. systems being formulated. Right, and the Chinese system. But you have to understand that the Chinese system is completely independent of Mesopotamian influences, and at mm -hmm. this time, it's also completely independent of Indian influences. So the Chinese also developed a system of lunar stations, and so 
the moon will go around the ecliptic in approximately 27 point some days. So you can divide that into 28 lunar mansions or lunar stations. And the Indians also did this as well. And the Indians call it nakshetras. But um, the Chinese lunar mansions and the Indian lunar stations or lunar mansions are completely different in, in, in their um, definitions. So um, that's why when the Chinese um, started receiving Indian astrology, which starts in about the fourth century, what they basically did was they just used their lunar stations as functional equivalents for the Indian lunar stations, even though um, in terms of proportion and also dimensions, they're entirely different systems altogether. And the Indian system, the nakshatras, each is like tied in with a specific fixed star. Is that also true in the Chinese system? Right. The Chinese system is entire, entirely sidereal. Okay. Right. And so that's how they um, divide the ecliptic, according, right. according to fixed stars. So each of the mansions is, a, is associated with a specific fixed star, and that's sort of partially how you identify it? Right. And it's also how you position everything on the ecliptic. So the Chinese manuals of astrology will define or position a planet based on its location within a given lunar station. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, so we have this type of astrology that's being developed between the second century BCE and the, and the second century CE in the Han Dynasty. And this is like the indigenous astrology of India. You're saying that it's entirely because I thought there was maybe some like Pingri or somebody said there may have been some transmission of right. like Mesopotamian astrology to <clears throat> China at some point. That that was Pingri's idea, but then there's also been some scholars who have suggested that because the, the Chinese had 28 lunar mansions and the Indians also had 28 lunar mansions, that they had to have come from the same source, an identical okay. source. But um, David Pankinier recently refuted this because he points out that there's absolutely no evidence that there was knowledge of lunar mansions transmitted from India to China or China to India. And you also don't have the lunar mansions in Mesopotamian astronomy. Mm -hmm. They knew what the orbital period of the moon was, but they didn't actually divide it into lunar mansions in Mesopotamia. But um, also the Indian literature, I mean, it appears as early as in its complete form, I think in the, Atar yeah, the Atarva Veda, so 500 BCE to 1000 BCE. And um, the Chinese, it also appears in its complete form around the 5th century, 4th century BCE as well. Okay. Yeah. So they seem to have developed, they perhaps were developing independence lunar mansion systems associated with specific fixed stars. And those are really like the the indigenous forms of astrology in both of those those right. regions. But, it's, but they're completely independent of one another. Right. Because you have the, I mean, the Himalayan ranges. And at that point too, there was no communication between the Indian subcontinent and China. Mm -hmm. There's some people who speculate that there was, but there's actually no evidence of this. Okay. You're saying because the Himalayas are just such a natural boundary right. blocking off right. uh, trade or access right. between the two. And it was areas. really only in this Han dynasty, um, starting in around like the, f the first century common era, that there was even um, the first contacts between Chinese civilization and India. Okay. And those contacts were through merchants. It wasn't intellectual contacts. Mm -hmm. So. And the other thing too is that they already had an established form of astronomy in China. So even when they were exposed to Indian systems, they had really no need to um, adopt those systems. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things, just to go back a minute, so you said that the they did have a sort of principle of like as above, so below, which we see sort of like vaguely canonized in the Western tradition and some of the Hermetic material, but there's not a lot of discussion about. I think you said to me once last night that there's not a lot of discussion about the philosophical like premise of astrology right. necessarily. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about China from antiquity until basically the modern period that there was never a discussion of the underlying metaphysical principles that would explain astrology. Right. 
So it's, they're just like sort of taking it for granted, or maybe there there is some idea there of a correlation between celestial right. movements and earthly events, but it's just not. They're focused on the technical, like how do you do this, right. rather than talking about why it works or how it works. Right. There, there's no literature that goes into the same detail as you would find in the Islamic or in the European tradition trying to um, justify the sort of premises of astrology in China. And the other thing is that other forms of divination like the uh, I Ching, which mm -hmm. in English is sometimes known as I Ching, mm -hmm. that's another very popular form of ancient Chinese um, divination that's still practiced today. But how is it supposed to work? It's not really explained. Um, and there wasn't ever really a need to discuss the validity of divination. People just took it for granted throughout the centuries. Right. That makes sense. So maybe when you understand that astrology originally emerged almost within the context of other forms of divination, mm -hmm. that the practices are are sort of being taken for granted. And maybe that's part of the reason why you don't have them trying to justify or explain one specific form of divination or another. Yeah, precisely. Okay. Precisely. Um, well, that's interesting. And we have similar issues in the Western tradition. I mean, there's very most of what survives from the Hellenistic material is just practical textbooks on how to do it. And mm -hmm. they don't really spend a lot of time talking about the theory of how it's supposed to work. And there's some ambiguity about how different authors thought. Right. I think it's really in the Western tradition, um, the criticism or the skepticism is really only evident from Claudius Ptolemy because he was trying to justify astrology in physicalist terms, by, mm -hmm. you know, describing the influences of the planets in physical terms. Right. Whereas everyone else described it in sort of, I guess, almost religious terms that, you know, fate is signaled by the stars. It's not some sort of physical cause that's affecting the planet. Right. It was more of like a correlation or a, an omen, like you said earlier, right. um, rather than necessarily a specific doctrine of celestial right. influence per se. And it's interesting then that we see something similar in the Chinese tradition. If they're treating it as divination, then it would be working as more of like an omen or a symbol rather than necessarily a cause perhaps. Right, right. Although it's hard to say since there's such little discussion. Right, right. Yeah. Um, all right. So we have that indigenous form of astrology in China. And so that's unique. It's not like they're not practicing. It's, it's a type of mundane astrology. It's not directed towards the individual. The closest you get to that is maybe the emperor, um, the emperor, who's right. like the earthly representative of the Chinese state. Sure, the state right. as a whole. But then, and and so it's important to contrast that with what happened then several centuries later. And so, the other what happened eventually is there was some sort of transmission of the type of natal astrology that was mm -hmm. practiced in the West in the Hellenistic tradition, the Greco-Roman tradition. Mm -hmm. At some point, was transmitted to. China, and that's been a large part of the focus of your work. Right, right. But we also have to go back to a bit of the earlier history, which I briefly mentioned. So, um, Buddhist scriptures. So, um, these were um, Buddhist texts that often uh, gave teachings of the Buddha, who you know was the enlightened one who lived in India in the fifth century BCE. Fifth century BCE. Okay. Yeah, Shakyamuni Buddha. But some of these scriptures also. Um, for various reasons, include astrological lore sort of incorporated into them. Mm -hmm. um, most of these scriptures don't have anything to do with astrology as their main topic, but just in in passing, they do have um, astrological lore. And but the first text to have been translated into Chinese was um, sometime between three hundred seven and three one three, and this uh, this text um, included some astrological elements. It's called called the Shardulakarna Abhidhana. And so it's a Buddhist scripture. It was produced in India. And what, what it is, is it's um, effectively a Buddhist story. And then there's a divination manual appended onto it. 
And it also includes information on the 28 lunar stations, the nakshetras. Okay. And it includes some very basic natal predictions that if you were born under a certain nakshetra, which is to say that if the moon is lodged in one of those lunar stations, then you will have this kind of personality. And this is circa 3rd century CE? Yeah, so the, the Indian text was probably produced around the 3rd century, and it was translated into, Chi into Chinese for the first time in the 4th century, early 4th century. Okay. And then other literature as well. Um, there, there are some other texts such as the Samadhi Urdi Pada um, and the Ratnaketu Parivarta and so forth. These are Sanskrit texts that are translated into Chinese that have astrological lore. But this is not horoscopy. It's, it's the lunar mansions, nakshetra astrology. Does that mean though that the Indians were using the nakshatras in the context of what might be broadly described as natal astrology at this point though, if they're applying it to the right. births of individuals? Right. It's natal and electional astrology. Okay. So um, some nak nakshatras are more favorable than others. So it becomes a form of hemorology, so a way of um, selecting auspicious days as well. Mm. So, and then there's other elements too in the early uh, Buddhist calendrical system that are hemorolo hemorological in nature. Um, for example, there is the system of pakshas and titis. And so a paksha is 15 days and it's either the waxing or the waning cycle. So there's the, there's the waxing cycle and then the waning cycle of the moon. And those are each divided into two 15-day um, segments. And each of those days, a lunar day actually, is called a titi. And some of them are more preferable than others for engaging in certain activities. And so the full moon and the new moon in the Buddhist calendar are the most auspicious days of the months to carry out anything of a religious nature. So especially when the Buddhist community, the Sangha, is assembling to carry out a business meeting, um, they're supposed to do it on these auspicious days. Okay. Which goes to show you, though, that the Buddhists in India believed passively in astrology, in the premise of astrological determinism, that some days are just inherently more auspicious, auspicious than others because of the configuration of the moon to the stars. Right. And this is actually something that's almost quasi-controversial or, or a point that you had to press recently in a paper, I think you said? Right. I'm going to be publishing a paper on this um, in a Buddhist Studies Journal. The title is just Astrological Determinism in Indian Buddhism. And my point is just to convey that although you have this principle of uh, karma, which is widely accepted um, by Buddhists, at the same time they do have the premise or the idea of astrological determinism and there was passive belief in it throughout a thousand years of Indian Buddhist history. Sure. I mean, it's, well, it's like in the Indian tradition, it's because it's been so, become so ingrained in Hinduism over the past 2000 years, it's almost like taken for granted that astrology is somehow related to or, or interacts with karma right. in some way. But it sounds like those tradition in, in modern times, maybe people are used to dealing with those things separately in the context of Buddhism. And so the, the controversy surrounding what you're saying is that maybe there was more of an interaction in the earlier traditions? Right. Well, what it is is that Western scholars of Buddhism tend to focus on the things that they are personally interested in, mm -hmm. which tends to be in the last century or so. What, it, what's, what, what it's generally been is um, meditation and philosophy that can be conceived of as more or less rational. Mm. So something like astrology is almost taboo, but there's also just no interest in it. And so if you read an introduction to Buddhism, um, written even by you know a very reputable academic, they won't mention anything to do with astrology. And when there is references to astrology, it's just it's very quick, and it's just like, well, some Buddhists believed in it, and then on to the next topic. Sure, because it's viewed as not a rational part of of Buddhist um, theology. Right, and it's also not considered an inherently important critical part of of the Buddhist project, which is supposed to be liberation from cyclic existence, samsara, this idea of re reincarnation and suffering. Mm -hmm. 
But if you look at a lot of the Buddhist literature, um, especially the Vinaya, and the Vinaya is uh, the monastic codes. And so these are the rules that govern the organization and um, hierarchy of the of the Buddhist community, the monks and nuns. There's a lot of references to astrology in this literature because you schedule the meetings according to this astrological um, schedule of, okay. of of the lunar um, the, the 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 lunar orbit as well as the waxing and the waning. Mm-hmm. But modern scholars of Buddhism have just tended to neglect this, actually. Whereas the the scholars of Hinduism have not. So one of the best scholars to date um, of um, Jyotish and uh, Indian astrology is Martin Ganston. Mm-hmm. So his work is sort of, I mean, it 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 it, it specializes in 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 uh, highlighting the the very important part of, that astrology played in the development of Hindu traditions in antiquity. So, right, but we don't really have that so much in Buddhist studies. Yeah, I love Martin's work. Also, we were talking about his work last night because he's got both um, training in. Um, Greek and classical sort of Western languages, and he studied the Hellenistic tradition, so he's very conversant in it. But he also has great training in um, Sanskrit and in the Indian traditions at the same time. Right, he's 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 quite literate in all these languages. He also, right. he also reads Arabic. Right, which is just really impressive. I mean, the only other guy I know like that that's sort of operating right now is um, Ben Dykes, right. who, as you said last night, and as I frequent refrain, is that he's kind of like a, a machine. Right. Who was sent from the future <laughs> in order to like translate all of the existing medieval astrological texts? Right, and he's quickly making his way through the majority of them. Right, I've I've made great use of his his, his translations, and I really like his new translation of Dorotheus of Sidon. Right, and that's going to become central um, as the work that you primarily suspect right. is the transmission route of Western right. astrology to China at one point. Right, right. So we'll get there um, pretty soon. But right. so before we get there, so. Where we got to at this point is that we start seeing Indian astrology or portions of the indigenous Indian astrology showing up in Buddhist text by like the third century or fourth century right. CE, and then it starts um, accelerating by the the sixth century, and then sometime um, around the year six hundred, there was another massive manual of Indian astrology translated in, into Chinese, but this wasn't done through um, Buddhism; it was a officially sanctioned. Uh, state translation of a text called the Gargiya Jyotish, which is actually extant in Sanskrit, but there's not a critical edition of it. So I was I've never actually been able to consult the Sanskrit edition of it. Um, is that the same text that Pingree calls like the Garga Samhita? Um, I think it's related to that one, but the Gargiya Jyotish I think is is it's a separate text. Okay, but in any case, the Gargiya Jyotish it appears was translated into um, Chinese in uh, thirty scrolls. Like uh, the word is scrolls, which you can think of as a chapter. So it's actually a fairly sizable text. Unfortunately, we don't have it anymore, so we can't consult it. But that does show you that the Chinese court around the year six hundred was interested in Indian astrology. And and, and is it being used for? Um, official purposes, like in Mesopotamia, like the high point of right. Mesopotamian astrology was in like the seventh or eighth century BCE under the Assyrians, where astrology is like a state-supported thing, and you have at least ten different Pingree called them colleges of astrologers who are right. all sending in reports directly to the king. Is it that um, that well integrated with the state in the Chinese tradition? Well, at this point, foreign Indian astrology, it doesn't seem that the court was practicing it, but there were ethnically Indian men. Um, working for the court. So they probably conceivably provided a second opinion to the emperor. Mm. And what's really interesting is that if we move ahead a century, there was a text called the Navagraha Karana, translated in 718, 
by a Indian uh, astronomer named Gautama Siddhartha, which is interestingly also the name of Shakyamuni Buddha, but this is a different man. And there were other families of Indian uh, astronomers working for the court. And the Navagraha Karana is not an astrology manual, it's a manual of scientific Indian astronomy, mathematical astronomy. And the Chinese court at the time was very much interested in foreign science. And at the same time, they were probably also interested in foreign astrology. Circa 700 or so? It's around 718. Okay. Yeah. So this is when this uh, Navagraha Karana is produced. So it it also gives you um, the formulas for calculating eclipses, as well as the um, rising and setting times throughout the year based on latitude. Mm-hmm. But then there's a big problem that we run into here is that China was using flat earth cosmology, mm. but this um, manual of mathematical astronomy assumes a spherical earth. Okay, It's geocentric, but it still assumes a spherical earth. Um, but the Chinese at the time didn't actually um, have a cosmology that embraced uh, this sort of round earth cosmology. Mm. It, was, it was different. So their manual of mathematical astronomy is extent. We still have it and I've looked at it, but the Chinese at the time didn't really make use of it which is some scholars have pointed out this is really unfortunate because you had very scientific astronomy, but the Chinese <laughs> didn't make use of it. They didn't necessarily reject it. They just um, didn't understand it because there's a lot of mathematical concepts like sine function and trigonometry and so on, which was alien to, alien to them at the time. Okay. But what it does go to show you though is that the court was interested in foreign science. Right. And this is in addition to, and so to back up to my earlier question, because in the earlier areas, like in the Han dynasty, astrology was officially sanctioned and was being used by the rulers. Right. And that's the purpose of like mundane astrology during right. that point. And that continued where they continued to have, but but at some point, as you get some of this foreign sort of astrology starting to come in, you have what, what you were saying is that you have um, some astrologers perhaps that are being consulted by the rulers as like separate things, but there's also a, a div- divide between right. the official state sanctioned. Canonical, there's canonical native Chinese astrology, and okay. then there's the, the astrologers operating on the sidelines, so to speak. And the canonical stuff is continuously used as an important like court function continuously, right? Right. right. Okay. And it's used consistently until um, basically the end of the, the Chinese empire in the early 20th century. Okay, until the end of the Chinese Empire in the early 20th century, it was still not just state-sanctioned, but but used by the the, the right. leaders in an official context. Okay, yeah, okay, and that was again just going back to it's that astrology that's more connecting different. It it was um, sort of lunar mansions, but also connecting different regions of the sky with different terrestrial regions. zones. Right. Okay. Yeah. Celestial connected with the terrestrial. Got it. Right. Okay. Um, and just mainly mundane astrology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then you start getting this influx of astrology from India that's sort of showing up, and sometimes it's bringing different astronomical concepts with right. it, but it's sometimes not jiving well with the cosmology that they currently adopted. They didn't necessarily know what to do with it. Right. But um, in in reality, they never adopted a spherical Earth um, cosmology okay. un- until basically um, the early modern period. Okay. When there was contact between the uh, Europeans and the Chinese court. Right. I mean, there's some, that's funny, like there's some like flat earth, like conspiracy theorists that are probably very excited to hear that. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, but Buddhist cosmology is inherently, um, yeah, it's it's inherently flat earth because, um, well, the, there's this idea of Mount Meru and the four continents, and that's ancient Indian cosmology. 
And that kind of stems from an earlier Indo-European uh, cultural background. So Indo-European being the um, sort of very, very ancient ancestral culture of the peoples of um, Europe and many of the South Asians as well. So for example, modern Hindi and English are both Indo-European languages because if you go back five, 6,000 years, they come from the same mother language. But you also have similarly um, sort of ancestral mythology. So you have Asgard in the Nordic tradition, you have Mount Olympus as the center of, of the world with the gods residing on it in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And then in, in ancient Buddhist um, cosmology, you have Mount Meru in the four continents. So you're saying this goes back to, what was the name of the like original hypothetical language? Um, Indo-European. Indo-European, okay. Right. And so you're saying it's not just language, but also um, mythology. mythology that, that right. ends up um, connecting some of these cultures as well, going all the way right. back. Like we have like, for example, in uh, Europe, the myth of the sun chariot, mm -hmm. where the sun is being pulled by a chariot, but then Surya, who is the, go the sun god in India, also has a chariot pulled by horses. Right. Right. Yeah. So you get interesting parallels like that. And that was a really big sort of discovery in just linguistically in like the what 19th century? Uh, late, late, late 18th century when okay. the British started studying Sanskrit. Right. Uh, they were exposed to Sanskrit and a lot of them were fluent in Latin and Greek at that point. Mm -hmm. And so they um, saw the, the connections and then they realized that there was a common ancestral language to Sanskrit, Greek, Latin, and also the languages that descended from these ancient languages like Hindi and English and French. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of also some some portions of the mythology or even like sort of religious or, or cosmological <clears throat> concepts then also um, having sometimes similar roots as a result of those linguistic origins. Right. Cool. Okay. So, and that's, you're saying that that ties in in terms of the, the flat earth co cosmology uh, uh, being more prevalent at that point or was Well, it, it's because the Chinese the native Chinese system of, of um, cosmology as well as the Buddhist system of cosmology are both flat earth. Right. And to be honest, the to the Chinese, it, it didn't seem like a big deal to them mm -hmm. um, because they were interested in studying the movements of the, of the stars and the planets. They weren't necessarily interested in so much trying to figure out um, the ultimate dimensions of planet earth. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's totally non-intuitive from a, just a, you know, observational standpoint. Right. Um, that it's that you're standing on like a globe instead of a flat surface, right? Right. Um, so, all right. So we're getting up to like the seventh and eighth centuries at right, this point, right? And where are we at in terms of that? So, so after seven eighteen, um, you have starting from that time also the introduction of esoteric Buddhism, also called Vajrayana. So, if you've ever seen Tibetan Buddhism, you see these colorful rituals. And that sort of same form of, uh, of ritual practice was being transmitted into China around the same time. And you had um, one figure, an Indian Buddhist monk, his name was Shubhakara Simha. And he, um, he died in 735. But in the 720s, he was responsible for translating a very important text on um, the sort of ritual practice of Tantra or Mantrayana, Vajrayana. And that was uh, the title of the text was um, either the Mahabharochana Sutra or the Vairochana Abhisambodhi Sutra. So this text, um, what it says is that if you're going to produce a mandala, that is um, a sacred space for, for carrying out a ritual. And a mandala, as we understand, is usually um, the painted version of it. So you have like an image of multiple Buddhist deities um, in this sort of um, coordinated circular or rectangular figure. 
and they're all positioned in uh, prescribed forms with prescribed instruments in their hands and so forth. Right. The image itself is supposed to convey some sort of deeper understanding or right. meaning. Right. But a mandala can also be painted on the ground. And so you can actually do it um, in life-size proportions. And they actually, and for, for these major rituals in India, they would actually do that. They would actually produce a ritual space on the ground, paint the deities on the ground, and then carry out the rituals on top of that. Mm. But what the text says is that you have to produce it when it's astrologically auspicious, when the asterisms the, and the planets all align. Mm. But it doesn't exactly define what exactly that means. Okay. So if you're a Chinese monk and you want to time your ritual to when it's um, optimally auspicious, you have to consult either an Indian monk who knows this or you have to consult a manual. But there wasn't any sort of manual available at the time. And there were a lot of other ambiguities in this text. So they produced a commentary. So Shubhakara Simha and Ishing, who was a Chinese monk, so an Indian monk and a Chinese monk, produced a commentary on this. And so the commentary gives more details about the Indian calendar. Um, it describes the nakshatras, also describes the planets. It's, the, it's one of the earlier references to the zodiac signs as well in Chinese, because they're not using the zodiac signs yet. And it also describes, most importantly, the seven-day week. And it says you have to use the seven-day week. Okay. So we kind of take this for granted, but in China, they didn't have the seven-day week because sure. it's a Greco-Egyptian calendar. Right. That's something that shows up in like the first century CE, give or take. Um, in the Western tradition. Right. And then, so this is the introduction of the seven day week into what was from a, a Buddhist text right. um, into China around right. the eighth century. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so in the 720s, this commentary is produced. And you also had foreigners living in China at the time. So um, Persians and um, some Hindus, um, sort of Iranian people living in China at the time. So Zoroastrians as well. And they observed the seven day week. Okay. And, but, ma and maybe we should back up to the Yavana Jataka because we didn't, we sort of skipped that point, which is that the seven day week itself would have probably come from right. Hellenistic astrology to India. So, so it's not indigenous to India. Right. So the, the Greco Egyptian um, astrologers produced the seven day week as we understand it with uh, the planetary hours recurring in the Chaldean uh, sequence. And where each day of the week right. is associated with a specific right. planet, like right. Moon Day. Uh, what is it? Mars Day, right, Mer Mercury right, Day, right. Uh, Jupiter Day, etc. Right, and so that was transmitted into India, not necessarily through the Yavana Jataka, but this is one of the key texts, the sort of witnesses to this transmission of Hellenistic astrology into India, which has been dated um, to the third century by Pingri, um, but that's been contested by Bill Mack on the basis of manuscript evidence. Right, and so the Yavana Jataka is more likely fourth or fifth century Common Era. Right. So the dating of the Avanajataka is being pushed back because Pingree's original rationale for dating it has been challenged, but right. there's still Bill Mack still acknowledges that there was some sort of that the Greek loan words where there's a bunch of Greek like astrological terms that have been translated or literated into Sanskrit in the Avanajataka still shows there was some kind of transmission of right. Hellenistic or Greek astrology to India into Sanskrit, but they thinks that the date was pushed back further and that the Avanajataka itself may not have been the original transmission point because right. he says that there's a more thorough and sort of unique right. synthesis of right. these different types of, of both Hellenistic and indigenous Indian astrology with indigenous Indian concepts like karma and Aryaveda and stuff like that. Right. And it's also just we have very few texts from that period that are extant. 
Um, I'm, I mean, the history of Jyotish is 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 highly contested, largely because we don't have a lot of manuscript evidence. Right, and it's so and it's hard to date them, even sometimes when you do have them. Right, it's like circumstantial dating. Whereas I know we were talking last night about how. It's nice in some of the the later Chinese texts that you work with that there's often like dates on the texts. Right. It says who translated it and when, and you also have catalogs of texts. So you also have other sources saying that this text was translated by this guy at this date at this place. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's really nice. Versus sometimes in some of the Indian texts, you just have to figure it out from like clues or or right. statements or geographical or political statements or things like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so this the seven day week came through India. Um, it's also the Persians as well were observing the seven day week, um, at least presumably from the time of antiquity. So, um, I'm not an expert on this, but I would assume that um, Sasanian Iran, which was the Persian Empire that lasted from the third to the seventh century, was also observing the seven day week. Right. So that's maybe that's another thing worth stopping on for a second that. There was a transmission of Hellenistic astrology to Persia starting around like the third century. Right, early third century. Um, it was one of the emperors, most likely Shapur, who ordered the translation of various um, Hellenistic scientific texts into Middle Persian, which is the language that comes before mo modern uh, Farsi. And then, so this was translated. So Dorotheus and Ptolemy and these other um, authors were translated into Persian. Mm -hmm. And from the uh, evidence we do have, both in terms of the Arab Arabic translations of Persian texts, as well as witnesses to the Persian tradition on the Chinese side, we know that the Sasanian Persians were very deeply interested in astrology, and both at the elite level as well as the common level. And even to this day, we have this image of the Magi, the mages of Persia, being experts in astrology. And even with the Star of Bethlehem, that mythology is connected to astrology. Right. So the wise men were following the star, and the wise men were associated with astrology even very early on in the Christian tradition. Right, and just tracing it back to that that like Mesopotamian lineage and the notion of the the Chaldeans right. being associated with astrology, which were right. like Mesopotamian priests. Right. Um, yeah. So and. With that transmission to Persia, what's partially interesting as well, well about the third century is just that the the reporters or the person who reports this, one of the main sources says that they sent out deliberately sent out emissaries to like gather scientific and astrological right. texts to both Greek texts, but also I think they said to India and, right. and to China. Yeah, yeah. So the the Persians definitely brought together, we know for a fact, Indian as well as Hellenistic sources, Hellenistic Greek sources together. Mm -hmm. And so this is starting in the third century common era. And of course, Persia, just geographically speaking, is in this interesting middle ground right. between all of these major regions. It is the- Eastern Mediterranean to the west western frontier of India. Right. Right. So, um, and that's also, is that part of where like the Silk Road ran through? Or oh, definitely, yeah. Okay. So, and, and China and Persia had very deep contacts from fairly early on, at least the first century common era. Okay. And, and so the Sasanian um, empire was also on very good terms with the Chinese empire um, or the Chinese empires that existed at the same time. So there was a lot of trade and the, the Persians would have played an important role as like intermediaries, right. intermediaries and trade going on between all these different regions with like the Roman Empire right. in, the, in the west, and then you have India, and then you in the what east, sort of southeast, and then you have China over in the far east. Right, right. And we ha we have records of um, both Persians and Sogdians um, living in China. And Sogdians were ethnically Iranian people. They weren't um, from the Persian heartlands, but they were these caravan traders who went in between 
Central Asia, even Western Asia, um, and they brought various products with them along the Silk Road. Okay. And we also have um, literature written in Sogdian, and we also know that Sogdians were very deeply interested in astrology as well. And so these were people that were ethnically Persian, but they learned- Ethnically Iranian. Iranian. Yeah. Um, but they learned Chinese and sort of settled in- Yeah, they, they became Sinicized, so they became Chinese effectively. So in, in, in medieval China, there were a lot of people who maybe their family was of Indian origin or of Persian or Sogdian origin, but they, they grew up effectively bilingual. Mm. And um, some of them even became Buddhist monks. And sometimes the the, the commentaries or the history say that you know, they look like a Persian, but they speak completely fluent Chinese. Okay. So uh, China in the medieval period was very multicultural. Um, and even at the time, like for example, in the, so the seventh century, the eighth century, it was very common for young people in China to wear Turkish clothes because mm -hmm. Turkish clothes, unlike Chinese robes, are actually very suitable for riding horses because there's trousers. Okay. And there's a cut down the middle so that if you jump on top of a horse, you, you know, you don't have your robe getting in the way. Right. And so the equestrian arts were very popular in China at the time. So men and women um, would wear Turkish clothes rather than Chinese clothes. And then you have the older generations complaining about this. Right. The, so, the, the younger generations and the, and the decline of civilization as like a recurring theme in different parts right. of the world. Right, right. Yeah. Every generation has issues with the... Uh, subsequent generation it seems right and and every older generation thinks that the younger generation is sort of going downhill or is destroying culture or right. what have you right um well that's interesting in terms of astrology though and just the idea of cuz that also evidently i mean what we assume or what people like pingree assume is that that's part of what happened in the transmission of astrology to india or natal astrology hellenistic astrology that there were that they found they discovered the um trading or the shipping they could use the monsoon winds that the traders could use the monsoon winds in order to sort of take goods back and forth between Egypt and right. um and India right and that there were some like merchants that settled down in India and started living there and then eventually adopted um Indian customs and Hindu culture right well we also have the Greeks in the northwest who settled in Bactria after Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE okay and so you had the in the um what are they called? Indo-Greeks right? in the Northwest. But at that time, they're not practicing horoscopy because that's too early. Sure. But, but you, you, did had, you did have Greek-speaking peoples um, even in the Persian Empire. Um, so people who were bilingual, they spoke Persian, but they spoke Greek at home, for example, because they were the descendants of the, the Hellenists, the Hellenese peoples who had settled after Alexander the Great in Central Asia. Okay. Um, but it's just interesting, the notion that somehow that's probably how different astrologies that are independent or developed independently maybe eventually get synthesized sometimes as you have people right. relocating and moving to different areas and bringing some of their indigenous customs but then adopting the language and the right. culture of, of their host and sometimes things getting intermingled or merging as a result right. of and, that. And that's what we see with the Yavanajataka as well. It's, right. it's a merging of Indian and Greek systems. Right. So there, it mentions, for example, the Muhurtas, which are the Indian um, hours. There's um, 30 of them in one day. So each one is 48 modern minutes. But then you also have the system of planetary hours mm -hmm. mentioned in the Yavana Jataka. So you have like the Indian system as well as the Greek system coexisting in the same text. Right. So, and then this is kind of where we start heading with the Chinese tradition in terms of us talking about the Persians and their link with the Chinese and being on good terms and acting as a trading partner and mm -hmm. intermediary. 
and also the in, the Persians becoming deeply involved in astrology during this time and right. and translating texts on Hellenistic astrology and Indian astrology into Persian and trying to create starting to create their own unique synthesis right. between the 3rd century and the 6th century or so. Right, right, right. And so between um the time of Shubhakara Simha, who was the monk who produced um, this commentary on the esoteric sutra that discusses astrology to some extent, there was a figure named Amogavadra, and he was also one of these masters of Vajrayana or Mantrayana, and uh, he produced the first authoritative manual on Buddhist astrology in Chinese. And the title in Chinese is Xiaoyao Jing, which literally translates as the scripture of constellations and planets, or um, scripture of lunar mansions and planets. And so he produced the first version of that in 759. There was a subsequent revision in seven, um, 764. And what this manual does is it explains the lunar stations in a way that's coherent and understandable to the Chinese. So what he does is he uses the 28 Chinese lunar mansions as functional equivalents for the 28 um, nakshetras, the Indian lunar stations. And so this um, immediately did away with the problem of trying to define nakshetras in, the, in, in Chinese terms. And this wasn't a perfect system, but it worked. The other thing is that this text tries to describe um, the Navamsas. So the Navamsas is where each of the lunar mansions is um, revised so that they're of uniform proportions, in contrast to the earlier system in which they're of different differing proportions. Mm -hmm. And so each one is divided into nine parts. So so nine parts, that's Navamsa system. Mm -hmm. And so it describes this, and you can kind of make a case for dividing 28 days and assigning each of those days days to one lunar mansion, even though that's not exactly scientific or entirely accurate, but it more or less works because the moon will um, keep going through this recurring cycle every 28 days, more or less. So what they did was they took the Chinese lunar calendar, which divides the year into uh, 12 months, 30 equal days each, and they assign each of those lunar days to one of the lunar mansions. So you only have to know the day on the Chinese calendar, and you can determine which nakshetra um, lunar mansion the moon is residing in or lodged in. And then from that, you can make a decision about whether it's auspicious or not to carry out the ritual. Okay. And this is all. The text also describes natal astrology in greater detail. So if uh, you know the day of the of of your birth then you can um, find out the, the lunar mansion under which you were born. Okay. And then there's predictions made, um, very brief, but there's actually some details um, about this. So th this is still not um, like birth charts in the Western conceptualization of it no. with the ascendant or the houses, but it is taking the idea of the lunar mansions and applying it to the idea that the position of the moon or the lunar mansion that um, the moon is in at the day of a person's birth is somehow relevant to their future life. Right, right. So Which it determines your personality okay. and some aspects of your fate of whether you'll be wealthy or poor or in, in ways you'll struggle. But in this case, there's no reference to the planets. It's it's only entirely based on the moon. Okay. But this text does, however, mention um, the planets in the sense that um, it just says to consult the Indian calendar. But again, we're in a system where you don't have um, access to an Indian calendar in Chinese. And I think given the popularity of this text amongst Buddhists and the fact that it was alluding to horoscopy or something um, approximating horoscopy where you start examining the positions of the planets relative to at least lunar stations, um, it prompted a lot of interest in astrology. And this is where the ethnically Iranian people come in. 
because around the year, um, sometime between um, 785 and 805, there was an ethnically Iranian figure named Li Michian. He brings something called the Duliusa Jing, which literally means the scripture of Duliusa, which is actually Dorotheus into China. He wasn't the translator of it. There was another figure um, who translated it, who was probably Li Su, who was an ethnically Persian bilingual um, figure who was from southern China, and he was appointed as court astronomer around the year 800. And Bill Mack has argued that he was actually probably the translator of uh, Dorotheus into Chinese. And what was the that was a was that a literal translation of the word Dorotheus of the name Dorotheus into Chinese? Phonetically, it appears to be, but it's not coming from Greek. It's probably from Persian, and that's why it's maybe a little bit more garbled because it's right. the name going through a couple languages first. Right. Well, we we pronounce those Chinese characters now as Duli Yusu, but in Middle Persian, it would have been pronounced differently. Okay. Because I mean, the, the Chinese language has changed considerably over 13 centuries. Sure. So, but we know this was um, Dorothean material. It's not the same text that we have um, in Arabic, Al-Tabari's translation. That's a separate recension of the text. What the material that was translated into Chinese um, is sort of merged together with uh, astrological lore connected to the lunar mansions. But that being said, there's a lot of features of this that we can identify as Dorothean. And primarily it, in my opinion, is the use of the lots because the lots that are defined in the extent material that's derived from this uh, Dorothean uh, text in Chinese, um, those lots are almost all identical to what's in Al-Tabari's translation. There's a few um, minor uh, differences, but they're for the large part identical, the definitions of the lots. Okay. So you're, what you're saying is that somewhere around the year 800, like probably there was a text that was translated from Persian into Chinese, and this was the introduction of full-fledged Western natal astrology or, or horos right. horoscopy. True, true, true horoscopy. So okay. there's the 12 places, there's the domiciles. Mm -hmm. This text contains the 12 places and the domiciles. Okay. 12 texts, the 12 domiciles. There was also probably another lineage of horoscopy that wasn't connected to Dorotheus that came from um, a Persian tradition. And I say that because we have one Buddhist text which doesn't have any Dorothean material in it, but it's still horoscopy. Mm. And so this one text in Chinese. Um, it, it it's primarily interested in the twelve places or the twelve houses, okay. And it also includes um, ephemerides for um, the planets, um, specifically the um, the five visible planets plus Rahu and Ketu. Okay, right. So and, and to back up a little bit, Dorotheus, of course, was a text that was originally written in Greek. It was an right. instructional text in five books right. that was written as the for, in the form of a poem. Right. And we think that it was originally composed sometime around the late first century CE. Right. But then it became incredibly influential from that point forward, both in the um, Western tradition where Dorotheus was cited over and over again, um, but also in other traditions where it was translated into Persian. And then it was eventually translated from Persian into Arabic around the year 800. Right. And then that spawned a very popular period of large parts of medieval astrology in the West being based on that Dorothean transmission. Precisely. Precisely. Okay. Right. So, and what you're saying though is like in addition to that, which is already like a huge deal in terms of the influence of Dorotheus on the West, mm -hmm. it turns out that Dorotheus also was transmitted through the Persians to China. Right. Which is crazy. I mean, that's really interesting, right? And so, if you if you look at my dissertation, um, I, I look primarily at the lots, and in some cases, um, the parallels between Altabari's translation 
And I mean, admittedly, I don't read Arabic, but I um, look at to uh, Dyke's translation and David Pingree's earlier translation. Mm -hmm. Some of the material lines up um, just just remarkably well. Where it just has to be that it has to because be. it's so similar. Right. And it's not just like technical similarities. It's in terms of actual predictions. Right. And so, even, even the idea of like a tropical sign at the ascendant um, relative to a certain lot signifying that your parents will be of different races. And it says that in the Chinese as well. Okay. And so then there's all these other parallels, which are just, it's, it's just so obvious to me that it's Dorotheus. And, but again, it's, it was, um, it was Yano Michio originally, um, suggested that it was Ptolemy that was translated, not Dorotheus. Okay. But then Bill Mack, I think it was in 2014, um, pointed out that actually it, this material is Dorothean in character. Okay. And, and, then, and, then I've, and then I've and then I've been building up on that. Okay, um, looking at um, yeah, Dorothean material relative to what is in the Chinese. So what else is in this text from a technical standpoint that looks like it came from Dorotheus's text? You said the twelve houses, the use of the ascendant, obviously in the twelve houses. Triplicity rulers. Triplicity rule. Okay, that's yeah. a huge component in Dorotheus. Right, right. right. Triplicity rulers. Um, the one thing though is that um, some of this material that's been preserved in other Chinese texts. Um, for example, there's a Taoist text that um, shows signs that this material was localized. So when it's describing the lot of spirit, if the moon is in the lot of spirit, the, the native will have an interest in Buddhism. And if it is the sun, then they'll have an interest in Taoism. Wow. Now, what that is telling me though, is that when they were translating the material, or at least when they were incorporating it into this Taoist text, that they had to localize it. Because if Originally in the Persian, it said something to the effect of like, if if you if you have the sun in the lot of spirit, you'll be a Zoroastrian. Right. It's it's not really applicable to most Chinese readers, so it sure. has to be localized. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in the Picatrix, it also you know the moon um, can represent um, idol worship, mm. right? Right. So and then Buddhism is a religion that has a lot of um, use of icons and worship of icons. Okay. So I mean, there are, are those parallels which I've, I've speculated about before. But so, so this material was also localized. And at the same time, too, when we, um, the zodiac, I mean, the um, the triplicity rulers and so forth. I mean, they uh, define them using uh, Chinese terms, um, using Chinese um, nouns. Okay. So it's not immediately obvious that it's it's triplicity rulers. So, for example, the word triplicity itself in Chinese is translated as. Um, master of, of three directions. Okay, that's great. And the original term was like trigonon, which means right. triangle. Right. So you, you can kind of get an idea of of of, of the concept underlying it. But mm -hmm. then you look at how it's being defined and it's identical to what's in Dorotheus. Brilliant. And um, the, the, actually, I should actually, I have to commend you for, 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 for helping me learn horoscopy because when I first started approaching this literature, I didn't really know where to turn to learn how to cast a horoscope or read a horoscope. So I ended up reading um, Tamsin Barton's book, Ancient Astrology. Mm -hmm. And then I went online looking for sources on Hellenistic astrology. And then you had your course online. So I enrolled in that and I went through that and I really learned um, the essential components to a horoscope and how to read it and a lot of the core doctrines. And then of course I read your book as well when you published it. And then I was able to read the horoscopic literature in Chinese with, with much greater ease. Right. Yeah. I always really appreciated hearing that. And yours was the first, I think, reference in your dissertation that anybody cited me in an cited my book in an <laughs> academic context. Right. So I appreciated that. Right. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's really exciting to be able to, because the revival and the understanding even of Hellenistic astrology has only happened in the past 20 years. Right. Um, so it's exciting now to have that happen so recently and then to have it be relevant in the study study of other like parallel tra traditions. Right, right. Yeah. And one of my arguments is actually that the, the Chinese were as much an heir to um, Iranian horoscopy as were the Arabs. Because we know that a lot of the Arabs, um, a lot of the Arabic tradition is based not just on Greek sources, but also Persian sources. Mm -hmm. And so to date, generally, we've looked at a few extant texts in Middle Persian. They're mostly religious texts and, and um, the, Arabic, the Arabic translations to try to reconstruct Persian astrology. And so with my work, I've tried to um, demonstrate the heavy Iranian influence. And this has actually been very well received by some people in the Iranian studies uh, community because mm -hmm. they, they actually realize uh, that it's quite significant, the amount of um, Iranian astrology that ended up in China. And to this date, nobody's really paid so much attention to it. Part, sure. of, part of that is just that we're dealing with multiple languages. And so very few people are going to be, you know, fluent in classical Persian studies and also know Chinese or classical Chinese. So, right. Well, and then to go out of the way to learn, you know, ancient Western astrology and be right. able to compare those traditions and understand some of the differences between them or the differences between the Hellenistic and the medieval tradition and so on and so forth. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this uh, text, and, and there, you said there was other techniques in this text that were transmitted that are Dorthean, like, um, did you say transits or were there timing techniques or perfections? Oh, especially the annual perfections, yeah. Um, okay. We also have a horoscope um, for somebody born on the 3rd of October, 930 Common Era, and that was produced on the 25th of January, 975. And it's a very, it's kind of a miracle story how this horoscope is even still exists. Um, so in the early 20th century, there were explorers who went to the frontiers of China and there was this cave that, the cave that they opened up and it was full of all of these texts in different languages, not just Chinese. There was like Persian, Sanskrit, Tibetan. And amongst those documents that had been sealed up sometime in the 10th century was a horoscope. We don't actually have the table itself, but we have the positions of the planets relative to the lunar stations. And so I was able to reconstruct the original horoscopic table. But half of that horoscope is basically the astrologer um, writing to the client, explaining annual perfections um, for at least 40, 50 years of his life. Wow, that's cool. And the Japanese horoscopes as well. So long story short, the Japanese learned horoscopy from the Chinese starting in the 10th century. And then you had a medieval tradition of Buddhist astrologer monks that uh, were quite influential at the aristocratic level between the 10th century to the 14th century in medieval Japan. And we have two extant horoscopes from Japan. And um, they're also very much interested in annual perfections. Okay. They so, don't have zodiacal releasing, but annual perfections were quite popular. And that was the most popular Time Lord technique that almost every Hellenistic astrologer mentions or right. introduces you to in some form or another, but Dorotheus especially has a very large section on that. Right. Um, so that's interesting. So it's not just that this text from Dorotheus on Western Hellenistic astrology was transmitted to China, but then by the 10th century, it was also transmitted to Japan. Right. Yeah. Okay. And we actually know the monk who carried it over as well. It was carried over, I think, in 865, but nobody actually seriously studied it, it seems, until the following century. Right, and so it was by a Buddhist monk. So is that? Was it just for the sake of divination, or an interest in that, or was he interested in 
was it being inter integrated in some sort of religious context or why well, would, you, the, the, would you be interested in it? Um, in the mid ninth century in China, um, Buddhists and as well as Taoists were very deeply interested in the practice of astrology. Mm. There was something called, a, I, I call it an astrology boom in China at the time. And it's not just religious people as well. You have some um, poets in China like Dumu who in uh, their work make allusions to astrological concepts. Okay. Like the 12 houses, for example. So this but, is in the, the wake of the transmission of right, natal astrology right. through the Dorotheus text at China. Suddenly in the next century, there's a, a flourishing of interest in astrology in general. Right, astrology in general. And it also affects um, religious practices. And so this is also when we have the introduction of um, astral magic. And now this is a very complex um, subject because you can say that there's three traditions of astral magic in medieval East Asia. Um, the first one is native Chinese um, magic, which is more or less Taoist in its orientation. And it, a lot of it is directed towards the Big Dipper, the seven stars of the Big Dipper, okay. who are thought to govern longevity. And so they're conceived of as deities. Mm. And then there's also the Buddhist, um, native Indian Buddhist tradition, which in basically um, calls for the evoking of uh, Buddhist deities to placate the negative influences of the planets. And this is when we have the emergence of the so-called um, uh, Buddhist figure Tejaprabha, who features quite prominently in the art record. And so Buddhists would commission these paintings of uh, the, you know, the zodiac signs and the planetary deities and so on surrounding this principal Buddhist figure. And they would worship this icon as a way of mitigating negative um, astrological influences, or at least um, being able to avert catastrophe. And then the other tradition comes also from the Iranians. And so this is sort of the same astral magic um, that was practiced in the Picatrix by um, and, uh, the Gayat al-Hakim in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And so then this magic calls for the production of icons at um, specific times. So for example, in one Buddhist and Taoist text, they're citing the same source, but they can reconfigure some of the details so that it's suit suitable to um, each respective religion. But it, you produce an icon of Saturn, and Saturn has to be um, depicted as a hunched over man holding a cane. And it always describes him as a Brahmin. But in the Chinese conception at the time, that meant basically um, an old man um, looking Indian. So he would be a bearded figure. And that icon itself, which we also have visual reproductions of from the same period, is actually based on, originally based on the Greco-Egyptian icon of Kronos. Okay. Um, it's not even the Indian icon. So this tradition of astral magic, again, is coming through an Iranian intermediary from the Near East. Mm. And it calls for burning Styrax incense. So the Orphic hymns, it says burn Styrax incense. In the Picatrix, it says burn Styrax incense. And also use black sesame oil, clothe yourself in black clothes. Mm -hmm. And also Saturn, it says that, um, so when you're carrying out this ritual, the, the, the general time that you're doing it, don't listen to music because Saturn doesn't like music. Mm. Um, so th there's, this, there's this tradition of astral magic that's being practiced in China, which all comes from ultimately the same sources as was used for the production of the Picatrix, which is a very um, you know prominent manual of astral magic in Latin Europe. Right, the Picatrix became like the main book on astrological magic during the, the medieval period and, and even the Renaissance. Right, right. And so we have the uh, Christopher Warnock and John Michael Greer's translation mm -hmm. of that. And then right now, the Gayat al-Hakim, which is the original Arabic text that was translated into Latin, is being translated um, by Liana Saif. And we hope to have that uh, published sometime in the in the future. 
Right, you said that was going to be. She's doing a, a critical edition right. of the uh, the Arabic text of the Picatrix, plus maybe an English translation. No, she's doing the English translation plus a very critical um, edition or critical survey of the Arab Arabic texts, the okay. manuscripts. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Um, all right. So that's interesting. So there's also a transmission of astrological magic to China. Right. Um, in addition to this Dorotheus text that's transmitted through the Persians, and all of it's going through the Persian intermediaries and right. then into Chinese. So it's there's a little bit of a game of like of telephone or whatever you call it with some of these texts where right. it's going from one language to another and sometimes the some of the concepts are being adapted to the culture to the host right. culture right. and sometimes i'm sure there's like little changes or or things that are happening along the way as well right there's there's various changes uh, along the way and then once you get to the 10th and 11th centuries you have evidence that horoscopy is also being modified to suit certain chinese concepts of cosmology so, for example, you have um, texts dating from the 10th or 11th century that have the Chinese five elements, mm -hmm. um, so like wood and metal and so forth. Okay, these these are completely different from the four Western elements that we know. And were any of the four Western elements, like the Greco-Roman elements, transmitted in the original Dorotheus text? Does that show up at all, or is it very, just very interestingly? Those are always omitted. Okay, because they might conflict with the cosmology. I, I think because it would have conflicted with Chinese metaphysics at the time, and it was probably deemed not that important, even though it is important to our modern understanding of astrology. Like you know, dismissing the four elements would just be catastrophic, but um, at the time they didn't see it as critical. Yeah, well, I mean, that's my. I've always suspected that that's why they don't show up in authors like Ptolemy, whereas his, his contemporary in Alexandria Valens right. mentions the elements in association with the zodiac signs right. very frequently. But Ptolemy omits mentioning that, and I think it's because it would have contrasted with his Aristotelian cosmology because it put the wrong elements in opposition to right. certain elements. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting if that's also happening in other cultures when they receive some of these. Philosophical or cosmological ideas that conflict with their own, and they have a, a issue about whether to use it or whether to just like sort of quietly drop it. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, okay. So we have, and what's happening? So natal astrology then, by the eighth century and forward, is is in China and it's being practiced um, from that point and becomes popular. But what happens to the indigenous form of Chinese astrology? Is it is it synthesized or is it practiced in parallel still? It's still practiced in parallel. And we have records, for example, of for example, this one Taoist uh, priest who was also um, practicing horoscopy in the late ninth century. Mm -hmm. And he, um, it seems he actually um, produced the horoscope for the emperor as well as a lot of the elite officials in the government. But that being said, um, the official court astrology, celestial luminology was being practiced separately. And so this literature of um, the official court astrology never mentions the zodiac signs, nor does it ever mention Rahu and Ketu, which are originally Indian in origin. Mm -hmm. So it actually maintains its sort of indigenous integrity over the centuries until the modern times. Okay, because it's right. it's practice. It continues to be supported by the royal court, and it continues to be practiced um, separately and independently and not merged or synthesized with the other right. sort of foreign system that's been being brought in? It's largely because the native Chinese astrology was based on a canonized body of literature, mm -hmm. and that body of literature was not subject to any sort of changes. Okay, So it remained static, more or less, over the centuries. And, and what's the deal? That actually raises a question because the very little that I know about what I assume is indigenous Chinese astrology that most Westerners do is like the notion of 
there being certain animals that are associated with certain years and there's like the year of the right. dra dragon right. or like the rat or what have you right. is that is that the indigenous Chinese astrology right. or that, what that, is that's that? That's indigenous, yeah. Okay. It, it's actually just by coincidence that the Chinese also divided the ecliptic into 12 zones. Okay. So and that, actually that stems from the 12 Jupiter stations because of the orbital period of Jupiter. Hmm. And they just divided it into 12 zones. Okay. And so then each you, of those- So you know, you know that for sure? That's not a like a speculation or something? Because I always wondered about right. that if that was true. Well, originally they um, divided it into 12 directions. Okay. And then- um, those could easily be coordinated with 12 Jupiter stations. And then each of those zones was associated with an earthly branch, which is a, a Chinese calendrical convention. And then each of those is associated with an animal. Okay. So- And how old is that? Is that the oh, that system? Oh, that goes back into like- um, The Han? In, yeah, at least the Han dynasty. Okay. Maybe even a little bit earlier than that. I mean, that's really interesting if that's the system, then the part of the indigenous system that goes all the way back to that that very fertile period around right. like the second or first right. century BCE. I mean, people say the Chinese zodiac, but this is actually um, you know, inappropriate because the zodiac is, is different from the 12 animals associated with the uh, earthly branches. Sure. So it's a different sort of conception, different structure in, right. in some sense, because it's like a yearly structure and it's based on directions originally, whereas the Western system is based on like a division of the ecliptic, right. uh, partially based on the yearly right. cycle of the sun. Right. Now, later on in Chinese horoscopy, uh, what you do find is the earthly branches standing as functional equivalents for the zodiac signs, in which case the animal associations are there, but it's very loose. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, for example, I think uh, Pisces is associated, ends up being associated with a pig. Okay. So, but that's only just because the earthly branch is, use, is being used as a functional equivalent for the zodiac signs. They also could name the zodiac signs using their Chinese translations. Mm -hmm. So, like in, in Chinese, Pisces is like a pair of fish, literally okay. translates as pair of fish. Interesting. Capricorn, interestingly, they preserve the Sanskrit name, which is Makara. Okay. And a Makara, interestingly, in India is a dolphin, but okay. Capricorn originally was a fish goat in Mesopotamia. Right. Yeah. And in, yeah. in the Greek tradition, they have like a weird word for it that's like Agokaros, which I think Schmidt translated as like goat horned one. So right. it was kind of this ambiguous sign in terms right. of describing what it even was. And, and in ancient India, they didn't know exactly what was being referred to. Right. So they, they, they used a dolphin. Okay, and then in China they didn't know what a makara was exactly, because um, I don't even think anybody could explain exactly what a makara was to the Chinese at that point either. So they ended up just depicting it as a giant fish. Okay, and sometimes they even translated it as just giant fish. That's great. Yeah. All right. Um. So, let's see. So then astrology is being practiced. We have horoscopy or Westernish astrology right. being practiced, and it's sort of in parallel. The rulers are sometimes consulting those astrologers. Right. Oh, yeah, one of the things that's interesting we, we talked about last night is um, there's only like a few, like a handful of of birth charts of horoscopes that have survived that you've been able to find at this point, right? Right. Um, I'm only aware of three of them actually. Okay. Now we have horoscopy texts, but we don't have so many extent actual horoscopes for for natives um, um, in our historical record. Two of them are from Japan, and one of them is from China. Okay. And it's unfortunate. I mean, maybe at some point in the future, there will be some archaeological discoveries and we might have more, um, but we have uh, the manuals of astrology. Um, but astrology also became very popular, 
again, or maybe it, it never lost its popularity in the 13th century. Um, so the Mongols conquer China and they're in charge of China for about a century. Mm. And Marco Polo shows up. And one thing that Marco Polo notes though is that uh, there, there were a lot of astro astrologers hanging around the capital and doing their business there. Interesting. And they weren't all Chinese either. At that point, there were um, Arab astrologers also operating in China um, as well as Persians and so forth. Okay. So, and it was also um, in the Mongol period that astrological texts in Arabic were brought into China. And they weren't translated yet, but after the demise of the Mongol um, uh, empire that had been controlling China, you had the restoration of a Chinese dynasty called the Ming dynasty. And early in the Ming dynasty, you had a translation of the Al-Matkal by Kushar ibn Laban in the late 14th century. And this is actually the first introduction of Ptolemaic astrology into Chinese. And so Yanomichio, he uh, translated the Arabic into English. And then in that same volume, he also includes the original uh, Chinese translation of the Arabic. And so I've consulted the uh, the Chinese and it, you can actually see, and this is something Yano already points out, that a lot of the material is directly adapted from uh, the Tetrabiblos of Claudius Ptolemy. Okay. And what time frame is this again? So late 14th century. Okay. Yeah, so we have century. a transmission of, of material that's been adapted from Ptolemy. Into uh, Arabic. Into Arabic. And then this is translated directly into Chinese. Okay. And then in the subsequent, in the 16th century, um, there are some astro um, astrology texts that are quoting, um, without actual citation, so it's almost like plagiarism, the Al-Matkal in Chinese translation. So we know that Chinese astrologers were consulting this text and practicing astrology with it. Mm. But that being said, the physicalist framework was not necessarily seen by anybody as contradictory to the earlier Dorothean transmission. In fact, you could probably just say that they more or less just saw them as compatible. So You're if, if, Mar if Mars is fiery, but then Mars is also indicating, you know, violence and so forth, then it's 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 not necessarily seen as a as signaling versus influence. So you're saying that because the physical you say physicalist because Ptolemy tried to predicate his astrology on a um, somewhat radically not right. radically different but partially different framework of celestial causality, and that this was sort of embedded in this text as well. Right, because it's 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 adapted from the Tetrabiblos. Right. Right. And then the Chinese translation as well. I mean, it's explaining these things in physicalist terms that, you know, Mars is fiery and it's warm in nature. Sure. Whereas Dorotheus was probably more originally like just symbolic or omen based right. in the way that it's sort of describing what certain planetary placements mean. Precisely. Um, so that actually raises a, another point which we talked about a little bit last night in terms of some of the things that then from a technical standpoint, from a Western technical standpoint that are interesting, like that he that the this tradition would have then had as a result of drawing on Dorotheus primarily in the early part rather than Ptolemy, like right. um their use of like house division, for example. Right. So um it's pretty much one of the things you'd said to me is that they used whole sign houses in this um exclusively. Exclusively. Okay. So we have the three extent horoscopes. Mm-hmm. And they all appear to be using um, whole sign house configurations. Okay. And then the other literature um, doesn't mention degrees normally. So the Al-Matkal in Chinese translation does give the aspects in terms of degree measurements. But in practice, it seems that that was never observed, even, even after the 14th century. Um, the other texts all just use whole sign house configurations. Okay. So the, wherever the ascendant is, that's the first house. Okay. Um, and and that's it's just whole sign house configurations the whole way. 
and the sign after that is the second house. Precisely. And, and then they're using, because it's from the Dorotheus tradition, many of the same meanings for the houses, right? Well, that's an interesting point too, that the translations of the um, house names are actually more similar to what you find in later um, Zoroastrian texts, or at least one Zoroastrian text. Okay. And this is something a Japanese scholar named Ito Gikyo pointed out um, several decades ago, that um, the house names are actually stemming more from an Iranian understanding of, of the houses rather than a direct Greek interpretation of them. So for example, the uh, sixth house is always called the house of slaves or servants. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty standard in the Hellenistic tradition. Right. Um, and then the, uh, let me see here. So the first one is the, the house of life or fate. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is normally the house of wealth. And the third one is uh, three brothers, four fathers. Yeah, that's all standard. Right. Yeah, and then- uh, Children, fifth? Right. Is, is children assigned to the fifth? The fourth, the fourth one is a state, right? The fourth house is a state? Right. Okay. Actually, I have this. You might have to edit this part out. No, that's all right. If you want to look it up in your book. So you have your dissertation. Maybe you want to show it to the, the camera. Right. So um, you published it as its little black booklet? Yeah. It's not an official publication. Okay. Yeah. I have to look it up here. So um, yeah. So the fifth house usually is children. So you're saying that the second house, though, it was financial matters, the third house was siblings, and the fourth house was parents? Right. Right, 157. I'm trying to think of others, like the six was often associated with slaves or with illness in the Hellenistic tradition. Right, so the first one, I mean, if you translate the Chinese directly, the okay. first is life, then the next is wealth, brothers, estate, children. Es sir, hold sir. on, estate is the fourth? Right. Yeah, and that's also the fourth in the Hellenistic tradition is sometimes associated with death, which catches right. astrologers off sometimes, but it's very common in the Hellenistic tradition. So five is children. Five is children. Six is servants. Okay. Seventh is marriage. Eighth is illness. Ninth is travel. Tenth is rank. And then fortune and distress. Fortune is the eleventh, and then distress is the twelfth. Right. Yeah. So they, they're they're very similar to the Hellenistic, but the the actual Chinese appears to be a translation of Middle Persian terms. Okay. Um, rather than, for example, as they're as as the names are known in in Greek or Sanskrit. Sure. In terms of those are the actual names. Like if they refer to a house, they'll refer to the place of. of Interestingly, certain... the Chinese almost never refers to the houses by numbers. It's always by the names of the places, the twelve houses. Sure, that's actually very similar in the Hellenistic right. tradition. They'll say the house of um, a good daimon. Yeah. Right. Right. So I mean, that's very similar, but it seems like the the meaning has been clearly transmitted there. I mean, all right. of those significations, I don't hear one that sounds like it's wildly different, No, which means that the underlying meaning of the 12 houses in that whole sign house right. framework was, was sort of transmitted more or less accurately. Right. It was. Like the integrity of it was quite well preserved. Right. It's just that um, in this case, the names to be appear to be direct translations from Middle Persian okay. rather than any sort of Greek source. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have that, and you said that they mainly used sign-based aspects. It appears based on what I've seen in the Japanese horoscopes, okay. which are a direct reproduction of the Chinese tradition, mm -hmm. faithfully preserved, that uh, they were using whole sign house configurations because they don't mention degree measurements. Okay. So you know it'll mention um, direct or um, square and so forth, but it's it's judging from. The horoscopic table and the absence of any degree measurements that it's it's just doing it based on whole sign house configurations. Okay. 
And are we mainly talking about natal astrology, or one of the things that's unique about Dorotheus is that in Book Five he deals with um, electional astrology or catarchic astrology and inceptional astrology, and then later in the medieval tradition we also have the sort of popularization of uh, the fourth branch, which, which is horary or interrogational mm -hmm. astrology. There's no horary astrology in Chinese as far as I can see. Okay. And when it comes to electional astrology and horoscopy, now here's the thing is that the horoscopy that I see in Japan and what I see in East Asia is primarily natal astrology. When we're talking about electional astrology, they almost always turn to the seven-day week. Okay. Um, and then maybe because that was easiest for them to practice. But for whatever reason in China, horoscopy was almost exclusively reserved for the purposes of natal horoscopy. Okay. And what we do have is these almanacs which describe the seven-day week, but also various forms of Chinese hemorology based on the Chinese calendar. And hemorology is the study of, of lucky days. Lucky basically. days, yeah. Okay. And so they, it doesn't seem that anybody tried to determine the most auspicious time and hour and minute to execute an action mm -hmm. or to carry out something. But instead, they just use the seven-day week for that. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder if that part of Dorotheus wasn't transmitted, or if it just wasn't viewed as as useful because there was already these other approaches to doing basically the same thing, or what right. what that was. Um, I think it might have actually just been the absence of specialists who could calculate the positions of the planets regularly. Because mm. in the Hellenistic tradition, presumably in Alexandria, you could probably walk down the street and find people who could um, sit down and do the calculations for you. Right. Whereas in medieval China and Japan, the people who had access to this knowledge, like the ephemerides, and also just knew how to do it, and on top of that were literate, because literacy was also much, um, much lower in East Asia than it was in the Hellenistic world. Part of that has to do with the Chinese language is that it, it just, it's, it's not a phonetic script. Okay. Right? So it, you have to learn at least, what, 4,000, 5,000 characters to become generally literate. Mm -hmm. And so in pre-modern times, there were far fewer people who were literate. So I suspect that the reason there wasn't as much interest in sort of electional horoscopy in East Asia was simply because it was just that much more difficult to do it. It was impractical. Whereas a seven-day week, everybody can, can use it. Sure. That yeah. makes sense. Um, all right, so I mean, so we have this flourishing of astrology, and that kind of takes us up almost to the to modern times, basically. Right, and then in the 16th century, you have um, one enormous compendium of uh, horoscopy produced by a court official named Wan Minying, and so this is sometime in the mid 16th, late 16th century in the Ming Dynasty. This is also the time when the uh, Europeans are showing up in East Asia, the Portuguese and the Spanish, and so on. Um, but Wan Min Ying's manual, it, it is a compendium of very diverse traditions, some of it going back to the ninth century. And he doesn't always cite his sources, but you can usually tell where he's getting his material from. Mm -hmm. And it's it's about 30 chapters. And uh, there's 10 chapters in that that I would like to translate eventually, and it deals with the um, zodiac signs. And so when a planet is in a zodiac sign, or if it's in a specific domicile, um, what the signif significations are. And okay. so that would be very, I think, interesting to modern readers. The other, the other thing I should point out too is that um, Chinese horoscopy um, and also uses a system of eleven planets. So, to clarify, you have the nine Indian planets. So the 
uh, the seven traditional visible planetary bodies, right. Sun, Moon, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then the, the North and South node. Right, Rahu and Ketu. Okay. And then the 10th and the 11th are these two planets called Cixi and Yuebei in Chinese. And Cixi literally means um, ominous or purple cloud. And then Yuebei, phonetically, it literally means moon comet or something to that effect. Mm. Now, Cixi, um, this cloud, this purple cloud, is a pseudo planet like Rahu and Ketu in the fact that it's not an actual physical celestial body, but it's a point on the ecliptic that you can track. Okay. What is it astronomically? Um, astronomically, it, it's actually a way of tracking um, intercalary months. So it, on the lunar calendar, every couple of years, you insert um, a 13th month mm -hmm. in order to keep um, the lunar cycle in line with the solar year. And so it's a way of actually keeping track of that. Okay. Um, but again, it's not a physical body, but you can track it along the ecliptic. And it was understood as having astrological significance. Hmm. And then the other one, Yuebei, is the lunar apogee. Okay. And the iconography of uh, Yuebei in Chinese is usually that of a female who's scantily clad, holding a sword and a severed head with very long black hair flowing. Hmm. And I argued that this is actually um, going back to an earlier Iranian tradition of the demoness Al. But Al is actually derived from an earlier Mesopotamian mythology, which is also the source of Semitic Lilith. Okay, so Lilith, basically. Lilith, right. Now, in modern astrology, everybody knows that the lunar apogee is Lilith. Right, that's... I, I had to try to figure out, where does this come from in modern astrology? Because Lilith isn't part of Renaissance astrology. Right. And what I found out, to the best of my um, uh, knowledge, so in the 19th century, you have Sepharial, who was an English astrologer in Victorian London. Mm -hmm. And he proposed that there was a second satellite orbiting the earth, you know, on the other side of the moon or on the other side of the earth that we just didn't see. Um, obviously this got dropped at some point, but he associated this with Lilith. Okay. And it appears he actually started implementing this into his, his astrological practice. But then sometime in the 20th century, some astrologers um, started associating Lilith with the lunar apogee. And I, I thought, well, maybe they got this from an earlier Hebrew or an Arab tradition that I'm unaware of, but I just could not find that. So it just appears to be a simple coincidence. Wow, that in the Chinese tradition, they have a, a body, which is the lunar apogee, which they're basically calling Lilith, sort of not really. I mean, they're translating that through, but if you take the right. translation back all the way, it goes to the same. It, it goes It goes back to the Near East. And it also has the same iconography. The iconography is the same. And also the, the lore is 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 very interesting because it's a very malefic planet. Mm. In Chinese, the lunar apogee is arguably the most malefic planet. It's worse than Rahu, Ketu, Mars, or Saturn. Right. So it very, it very seldom ever indicates anything positive. Lilith was originally like a, a demon or something like that? Well, she's a demoness. Okay. Yeah. Um, but again, I have to emphasize that the in, the in this Chinese iconography, it's not the Semitic Jewish Lilith. Mm -hmm. It's actually the Iranian Al, who is connected by virtue of coming from the same Mesopotamian origin. So, but for for but but for lack of a better um, term, we can you know just say Lilith. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. Right. I, I mean, I'm sure that would be an interesting. I'm sure that will at some point maybe will be a full fledged like paper or something. Well, in, in in my paper um, that I recently published um, with Xenoplatonic Papers, which you can download for free, just type into Google Xenoplatonic Papers, and my paper will be towards the top. And then um, I have the the details on that, as well as the astronomical parameters which uh, Lua Bay is defined by. Okay. So it's it's the apsidal precession, which is basically if you know that the moon goes around the Earth 
in an um, elliptical orbit, but that orbit itself is also moving in a circular fashion. Mm-hmm. And so the lunar apogee is also moving. Um, and then so they also had the uh, mathematical formula for calculating that. So 8.85 years it goes around the Earth, which okay. is epsidal precession, which is the lunar apogee. Got it. Yeah. And that actually Brilliant. goes probably goes back to at least Hipparchus in the Greek tradition. Because we know that Hipparchus was aware of the lunar apogee and a way to calculate it. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so they used eleven those eleven bodies basically right. or celestial. In, in in their horoscopes in, in China. Okay. Up until at least the sixteenth century. Got it. And then what also changes in the subsequent century is the introduction of uh, the Jesuits into the Chinese political scene. Okay. And then some of the Jesuits also um, translated astrological literature, and they also assisted in improving Chinese um, astronomy as well, scientific astronomy. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, there's there's been books that have been written about this, like the the influence of European astronomical traditions on uh, early modern China. But at the same time, there was some influence um, in the astrological scene as well in China. And this is something I haven't studied in great detail yet, but it's something I have to look at in the future. Sure. Probably some transmission of like right. like Renaissance texts right. into China at that point. Right. And in the Qing dynasty, it, it appeared, the Qing dynasty being like the dynasty between uh, the mid 17th century and uh, the early 20th century, the last imperial dynasty of China, mm-hmm. um, people were still practicing um, astrology. And at the same time too, you have the native form of astrology, but then you also have um, various um, traditions that had brought together some forms of horoscopy with native forms of hemorology. Um, but I'm not entirely sure what happens between the 17th century and the 19th century in with respect to uh, horoscopy, um, the sort of tradition of horoscopy that had been so prominent in the 16th century. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if that tradition survives to modernity or not. I've heard conflicting stories, but my problem is that people can say that, well, my master taught me this tradition and he says it goes back to antiquity. Right. People can say that about anything. Yeah. So. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything in a strictly like chronological academic dating context. Right. Um, um, it's just based on hearsay or what my teacher said to me. Sure. So I have to actually find historical records or at least texts that were published and dated to these earlier centuries before I can actually determine what happened over those last few centuries. Sure, but we do certainly still have the the indigenous form of like court astrology continues to be practiced up until right modern in, times. Yeah, right until the end of the last dynasty. Okay, yeah. and then what happened? I mean, just like a brief historical lesson, we have the the revolution in China, right? The nationalists um, and the, the the collapse of the the Qing Empire, um, and then the rise of the communists in the nineteen forties, um, and then they outlawed that type of divination or all types of divination. That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if they had a standing policy specifically towards astrology, but they basically called it sort of feudal superstition. Anything Buddhism, Taoism, ancestor worship, that was all kind of categorically regarded as uh, feudal superstitions that had to be purged from society. Okay. So that being said, though, there's still a lot of people in China as well as Taiwan, but Taiwan was never subject to communism because the the nationalists uh, settled in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And but if you go to a Taiwanese bookshop, you can find books on Western uh, astrology translated into Chinese. So there's actually a lot of interest in in horoscopy in in China these days. Yeah, it's been uh, from what I have seen from other astrologers and people I've talked to, it seems like it's really um, had a resurgence or a sort of re- renaissance over the past maybe couple of decades. Or right, right, and I think it's also with uh, 
the internet as well, it's, it's facilitated as knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also a lot of native Chinese astrologers who are looking at these earlier texts because, um, they can read them, mm -hmm. um, being native Chinese speakers themselves. So they can read them and they can also start incorporating this material into their own practice. See, and that's what I'm actually curious about at this point and interested in maybe a follow-up episode just because my understanding was there's like a, a, a revival of interest in astrology in China over the past couple of decades, but they're largely studying like modern Western psychological astrology and that there might even be something about being able to do that or that being permissible because it's more psychological and therefore like character analysis rather than like predicting events or something like that. Right. And that there might still be some potential for issues, although there are some people that are starting to get into traditional astrology and so some of Ben Dykes' books are being translated and things like that. Right. And that would be a very interesting um, interview to have if you could find somebody who could um, discuss that. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm just, un I'm actually unfamiliar with the modern Chinese um, astrological scene because I, I just tend to deal with these pre modern texts. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that will d definitely be a great follow up episode. I know there's a great NCGR group in Taiwan and there's other astrological groups there mm -hmm. and then other groups in mainland China that I've wanted to talk to. But now that we've set this really amazing, like historical overview, that there was. A traditional, there was both the indigenous sort of forms of astrology, but also a long tradition of practicing that type of almost Western astrology in China for many centuries. Um, that really opens up the, our sort of historical understanding for, right. for for things, and we'll we'll set a nice foundation for the future. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. This is this is amazing. Thanks a yeah. lot for doing this. Where can people find out more information about your work, or if they want to follow your work, or um, get in, in touch with you. You have a blog where you've posted articles and stuff, right? Right. I have an ongoing blog and some of it deals with Buddhism, but also the other half of it deals with um, my study of astrology. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, we could put a link to it or you can just type in um, Jeffrey Kotick um, and then I'll, the first 10 pa pa pages on Google will be me. <laughs> okay. So you can find my blog that way. You can also download my papers um, off archive.org. Okay. So again, you just type in my name, or you, if you have a membership on Academia or you register, you can download my papers that way. And so I have a few articles. Some of them are all like nearing book length. So the one, so the one for Sinoplatonic papers is ninety-five pages. Wow. And that's discussing the sort of introduction and domestication, localization of horoscopy in China. That's ninety-five pages. And then the other major paper is about medieval Japanese Buddhist astrology, and uh, astral magic, which and that's where I discuss the two horoscopes that are extant in Japan. And then I also have some other articles which might be of interest. So you just if you just download them, they're all free to download. Brilliant. And is your dissertation? Do you plan on on making it publicly available or publishing it at some point? Or? Oh yeah, you can download that too if you want. Okay. So, so that's basically um, more or less a monograph. It's a book at this point. Yeah. But I'm actually going to be revising um, the entire dissertation and publishing it as a separate book sometime, hopefully in the next two 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 years. Okay. Two to three years. And um, on top of that, too, I'd like to translate some material, at least 10 chapters from that 16th century manual that I mentioned by Wan Minying, which would be of interest because it deals with the zodiac signs as well as the 28 lunar stations and the significations of uh, the 11 planets in each of them. So that we, I think, I think the, the modern astrologer could actually make use of that. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very um, just a fascinating read, too, um, just to see how horoscopy is being practiced in 16th century China. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. And, and drawing on, it sounds like they're also drawing on those centuries of practice that right. have built up up to that point since the 8th century. 
Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Um, and I'll, so I'll put links to a bunch of this stuff, so your your websites and different right. things on the description page for this episode. Right. So if people want to find that, in addition to just googling your name. Right. And um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything I also forgot. Are there any other like major topics that we should touch on before we wrap it up? I think this is about everything. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, thanks for being my first guest in the new studio for the Astrology Podcast. I right. really appreciate it. It's been an honor um, having you and talking to you about this. Thanks for giving us this amazing overview of the right. history. Well, uh, I consider you my teacher, so thank you very much for having me here. <laughs> yeah, it's been my pleasure. So um, thanks a lot. And uh, I guess that's it. So thanks okay. everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Um, please be sure to subscribe. You can find out more information about the podcast at theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. And I think that's it for this episode. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next time. Take care. All right.